It's 12 noon, Saturday, June 25th. This is Dwight Wiest in the WR Newsroom with 15 minutes of the latest news. First, a look at the weather. Sunny and breezy this afternoon with low humidity, the high in the comfortable 70s. Present temperature just off Times Square is 71 degrees, and there are light, puffy clouds in the sky. I'll have the complete weather forecast for you at the conclusion of this broadcast. Today marks the 10th anniversary of the Korean War. The communists observed it with a new demand that U.S. troops leave South Korea as well as other parts of Asia. North Korea, supported by the communist world, made its demand for a U.S. pullout in radio broadcasts and the press and at a meeting with U.N. command representatives near Panmunjom, where the Korean truce was signed. I'll have more news for you after this message. to make the point. It's... Uh, <laughs> oh, you, you, you think... You, you think it's as simple as all that, huh? Well, let me tell you. I, I was just listening to Dwight Wiest, and uh, he said that the great race at Le Mans is now underway with the famous standing start. Does that mean anything to you? The standing start at Le Mans? Uh, what, what, uh, what it actually entails? What it is? Well, I'll tell you what the standing start at Le Mans is. All the cars are lined up with the noses of them. Now, this is not started like any other ordinary race. The the Indianapolis race, of course, is started with, uh, let's see, I believe it's 11 rows, 11 rows of three cars each, 33 cars, and they're strung out across the track in a great long line. And all the motors are started, and the cars take off that way. But this is a different kind of a race, the, the Le Mans. The 24-hour Grand Prix, which is one of the most famous and probably the most uh, 
the most honored race of all the races all over the world. But the, but the standing start at Le Mans is a spectacular thing to see. All the cars are parked, you know what they call angle parking in the States with the noses into the curb? Well, all the cars are parked along the track in a long line. I believe it's, yes, it's a double line. That's right, a one, uh, not double really, but they're parked across the street from each other. They're parked along both curbs of the racetrack with the noses angled in toward the outer rim of the track. And the cars are stopped. The motors are not going. And they're all, they're all parked that way. And then the drivers, at a signal, run across the track. The race officially starts when the drivers begin to run, not when the cars begin to run. So they, they shoot off a gun, all the drivers run across the track, and they jump in the cars, and they step on the starter, they back up, and they drive away. Now, the reason they do this is because all these automobiles are supposedly stock cars in one way or another. They have to have starters, they have to have lights, they have to have a reverse gear. You know, there's no reverse gear on the Indianapolis cars. They're, they're pushed backwards. So the reason that they have these cars back up is to prove that they all have reverse gears. They can do this maneuver. And they can be started by the driver. Well, one of the funniest things that I have ever known, one of the, one of the saddest, and, and I think one of the most significant, of course, I have, a, I have a sneaking suspicion that almost anything that man embarks on, there is a touch of sadness connected with it anyway. There's, there's the inbuilt sliver of, uh, well, uh, frustration. Uh, the, the, uh, the dream never quite comes up to the reality. Well, a friend of mine was entering a car, one of the wildest stories I've ever seen in connection with one of the great Grand Prix races. And this guy had a little racing car called a Bandini. It was an Italian car, and it was a very expensive piece of equipment. And he had been, he'd been racing it fairly successfully throughout uh, many of the Midwestern tracks and some of the Southern tracks. And it was all sports car racing, you know, which, is, which has replaced polo, incidentally. Uh, sports car racing has become what polo used to be maybe 50 years ago. And all the, all the young blades, the, the guys who have plenty of dough, who have absolutely no ambition, but who have uh, glands, uh, find, themselves, find themselves racing in sport car races now. There's, all, there's, a, there's a whole collection of these guys who go from track to track. And it's become a, a, a sport which most of the people who began sports car racing, that is, it was, it was begun right after the war again. Of course, sports car racing is an old, old thing. By the way, this is not going to be a program about sports car racing. I'll tell you one thing, though, that happened. It was one of the wildest, funniest pictures I've ever seen uh, of, of, human, of human failure, the, the, the fantastic frustration that this friend of mine got a hold of a Bandini race car and it's a very expensive piece of equipment, highly tuned. It, it stands there, and even when the motor is turned off, this car quivers slightly. It quivers, and you could, you could just feel the, the, the high-bred tension in it, you know. It's, it's a car that is always standing with its knees flexed, ready, ready to leap. Oh, it's a fantastic piece of equipment. You sit in this car, and immediately you feel as though you're, you're four, four feet taller. And you're, you're just, you know, you're just, uh, there's, a, there's a sense of power that flows through your body, which, of course, is purely an illusion. But uh, nevertheless, the, by the way, this is one of the reasons why so many guys get killed every year driving their, their ordinary uh, homegrown automobiles along turnpikes, is this false sense of power and this false sense of security which the motor gives a man. Uh, very few guys, very few little guys do I know, 
who really frankly admit that they buy big cars because big cars make them feel like big men, which is the, which is really the case. I, I had this little little friend who looks like Jigs or something, who every two years goes out and buys, and, and he makes hardly any money, you see. He's one of these guys who just barely scrapes along. But every two years, he goes out and buys himself a fantastic automobile, always used and always at least 30 feet long. Tremendous car. And, and uh, he is the only guy I ever know, I've ever known, who looks me right in the eye and says, I buy that little car, that little old, that little old 400 horsepower car because it makes me feel big. Big, that's it, big, <laughs> big. And he gets into traffic and he bumps people and he, he tears up, he tears, as, as, as uh, Red, as Red, uh, what is his name again? Oh, it doesn't make any difference. But the point being that, that the car is a, is a kind of a, an extension of the personality. And racing, of course, is, takes it one or two steps further. And this friend of mine was a wealthy type who was used to getting everything he wanted, always did. He had nothing to do but race cars every second or third weekend. And so he got a hold of a Bandini, which is a sleek machine, beautiful machine. And he, he, he trained the car. He had a mechanic that went with it. He had a trailer that went with the mechanic and the car. He had three girls who wore red coveralls who went with the entire entourage. It was the whole bit, you know. He made Sports Illustrated. He made Sports Car Illustrated. He made Rodent Track, all of them. And he was always pictured sitting there with his white helmet, you know, buckling the thing underneath his chin, ready to take off in another big one. Well, I saw him one time take off in the biggest race of his career, and it was a, it was a beautiful, fantastic thing. It was right out of a Laurel and Hardy. They had trained the car. They had, they had tuned it now for about four months for this big, this big international Grand Prix. Now, to, to drive in an international, you see, is, is the equivalent of driving in, 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 a, in a sort of a continuous stream of Kentucky derbies. It's a very difficult thing to get into the big international Grand Prix. And he finally made his first international. And I was there to see him. And the Bandini was parked down there, the angle parking. They have the, the business of the standing start. And everyone is, all the drivers are wearing their clean coveralls and we're wearing their white helmets. And Sports Illustrated was there and had taken the pictures. And everybody was ready to go. And there's a, there's a, there is also, incidentally, an international crowd that sort of, sort of gathers around all these Grand Prix. They travel from Grand Prix to Grand Prix. It's a very social, very special in-group. It has nothing to do really with the racing. It has, well, there's a, it, it, I guess, must be pretty much the same as the same crowd that followed the polo, the, the, the polo bums. And, the, and the, a few years afterwards, the uh, tennis bums. But the tennis thing has kind of slipped into limbo. It, it slipped out uh, somewhere around the mid-1930s. And, of course, it's still a big international event. But it is not followed with the same degree of, of uh, social, social coloring that it used to be followed with. And now we have the big international racing. All sorts of people race in these things, and among them, the very, very rich. Also, the very titled. Both of them race in these events. Well, here was a Grand Prix that was being raced. And my friend was down there, and he was representing America. In, in the whole shebang, the only American driver in it. They fired the cannon, and he ran across the track. And, I'm, of course, I'm cheering him on. Everybody else is cheering him on. All the international, the bevy of international beauties, are all of them looking like Bridget Bardot, incidentally. 
He goes tearing across the track. He jumps in his car, grabs a hold of the, the, the starter lever, and which incidentally was a pull type, which came out of the dash, the kind you pull out. He grabs a hold of it, pulls it right out by the roots. Rah! He pulls it out. All the other cars are backing out, and there's his car. So he, he rushes, and incidentally, one of the rules of the Grand Prix is that no one, no mechanic is allowed to touch a car from the time it starts. That the cars have to be completely serviced by the driver, you see. If the, if the car stops somewhere after 28,000 laps and a, and a light burns out, you've got to get out and fix it yourself. And so Chuck jumps out of the car. In the meantime, all the Ferraris and all the Aston Martins and all the, all the Abarths are pulling out around him. There's this tremendous roar and the smoke is, and he's pulled the thing out by the roots. So he jumps out of the car, falls down, hits his head on the concrete with his, with his white helmet, gets up and he gets around the front and he pushes the car out on the track. He finally gets it turned around and he puts it in gear and begins to push it. Suddenly the car started and he was out of it. He's running alongside of it. This is exactly what happened. He's running alongside of it, and the car is going like a demon. He's running, and he jumps out, and he's hanging on the back of it with one hand on the steering wheel, his feet hanging over the fantail. The car makes one complete lap like that. And finally, they're trying to wave him off the track. The yellow flags are up, and the green flags are down, and the, the purple flags are flashing. And he's running along with one foot hanging. He looked like he was driving a scooter, and the Ferraris are going past him. Finally, he just sort of falls off sideways, and the car goes into the infield, and he just sits there on his duff. <laughs> $26,000 worth of equipment. Now, what a beautiful sight. It was, it was one of the... <laughs> I mean, it just, just made me feel kind of warm all over. I, I, don't, I don't mind... <laughs> <laughs> All the fancy trailers with the chrome wheels. I guess it's because it's Saturday, you know. I, I'm I'm sitting here, and I'm I'm listening to Dwight Weiss talk about that, and and I and I realize that very few people, among the great mass of people, really know what all of this Grand Prix stuff is about. Incidentally, speaking of the Grand Prix, I, I noticed a very beautiful report by a, a writer for the New York Times, the only paper in town, and I don't, have a, I don't have a contract with the New York Times, but the only paper in town that covers these things constantly and adequately is the New York Times. And I noticed a couple of days ago, right after the Grand Prix of Belgium, there was a beautiful write-up, and I don't remember who the name of the writer was, which is a very, this is a terrible omission, but he wrote up the Grand Prix of Belgium, and he talked about the uh, the new cars opposing the old cars and the dangers that have grown out of the Grand Prix of today as opposed to the o earlier, older Grand Prix. Well, very interesting thing about it. I've as even as a kid, uh, I was very very fascinated by automobile racing, and in fact, uh, almost every kid who grows up in Indiana, in one way or another, becomes involved in not not really involved in, but interested in the whole business of racing speaking of the race going to the going to the quick or maybe the dead this is w o r a m and f m new york uh, speaking of races do you don ever hear sticks on a bass fiddle well lend an ear Right, lively, golden, crystally clear, the crisp green. 
crisp kind of light with true lager flavor. That's Valentine beer. No wonder it's the largest selling beer in the East. I'm not going to talk any more about Grand Prix racing, except to say that uh, probably the most interesting of all the Grand Prix racing occurred. Hey, why is it that hardly any do any of you? Do, do, am I the only one who remembers this? I mean, this is just a is just a, a passing question that probably has nothing to do with reality. But am I the only one who remembers pylon racing? I'm talking about aircraft racing. When I was a kid, I, was, I must have been about six or seven or eight years old. My father was a nut for going wherever there was a crowd assembled. He was the greatest crowd man in, in the history of the Middle West. And incidentally, the Middle West is a born, just a, is, is, just a, is an area where crowds just naturally grow. Uh, for any, and any, any small reason, a crowd will, will gather. Is there hardly anything to do if you've, <laughs> if you've ever, uh, done any shallow water fishing in a shallow water lake, you recognize that one of the things that fish are constantly doing is just to look for something to pass the time of day. Hardly There is hardly anything more bored than a fish living in a freshwater shallow lake. And all you have to do is to take maybe a piece of bread and drop it down into shallow water that's clear. You know, you can see down through there to the bottom. And even if you you don't get any bites, you'll find thousands of fish will come just to look. They just come to look. Have you ever watched fish do this? It's interesting to, to realize that many times when a fisherman is sitting in a boat and he's getting no bites and they're not hitting, that he is being observed, or at least his worm is being observed, or <laughs> by, by a million fish, and they all just sort of sit around there and look. And they just observe. They've got nothing to do. Well, this is the way the Midwest is. It's like a big, shallow, lukewarm, clear water lake. And everybody's sort of standing around first on one foot and then on the other. Television was made for them, believe me. I mean, they stand first on one foot and then on the other foot. And then every three or four weeks, somebody announces that there will be a strawberry social next Sunday at the church. And, of course, then this gives you three more weeks of interest to live by. You work hard at that. And then after the strawberry social, everyone stands around again. You see, it's, it's a continuing action. Well, my old man was always in the forefront of any crowd that formed. And I could tell you about some fantastic crowds that occurred in the Midwest over absolutely nothing. Nothing. It was just nothing. It would be as if somebody had dropped a breadcrumb in this fishbowl and they all gathered. It was just nothing. And one of the things that used to gather the people, of course, it was always the weekend that the crowds really did gather on. And I can remember as a child, one succession of crowds after the other. One succession of boiled-over radiators after the next. Millions of radiators boiling over. Great long lines of people. Guys walking up and down through the lines selling good humor bars. And the, the, the whole thing just covered over with a thin coating of yellowish, brownish, grayish dust. And, and what was that? Yes, of course you're right. It wasn't good humor. It was Eskimo pies. <laughs> He's right. We have a <laughs> we have a historian leaping. 
That's right, Eskimo pies. And, and this, this long line extending into the distance. And, and uh, the, the, the idea, of course, was, was a kind of breaking of the boredom. You know, life is, in a way, a long, uh, a long process of finding something to do. Uh, finding something to do. All of this business of cutting out paper dolls and all this tremendous, this file cabinet system we have here. And all of this, this great business. Have you ever stopped to think of all the, the business of mankind, all of the trivia, all of it, including all the great making of automobiles, all the fantastic operations that go on? What is it all about anyway? I mean, really, you know, you eat, you sleep, and you die. This is about the extent of it, you know, and when, when all of it is sloughed away. But all the rest of it, as George Ade put it one time, George Ade said that, that fun is the few moments the little moments that you can forget that you're growing old and are about to die. And there's much truth to this, you see. It's all, the, the whole business is going on. Of course, in the Midwest, you were reminded much more constantly of mortality than you are in the great city, the urban, the big urban complex. You, you, there, there's hardly even uh, ground around here to remind you that you are living on the earth, that you are really part of, uh, of something that, that has to do with nature. But on, the, uh, on that big Midwestern plain, no, it's not at all like this. And so the people are constantly looking for something to do. And there is hardly anything really to do. Uh, here on the eastern seaboard, we have, we, have, uh, we have the ocean, for one thing. And don't, don't ever discount the ocean. Uh, the ocean, even if you don't go to it, is always out there. It, it, it has influenced the entire life of the whole eastern, the whole eastern state complex. Of course, there's no ocean in the Midwest. There, there are only those lakes out there. And those lakes are far and few between. And uh, here it is. It's just a large, flat piece of ground. And the sun comes down. And, and there's hardly anything that happens. And once in a while, why the, why the drive-in theater? Do you know that I have seen people in the Midwest sitting in a drive-in theater when there is no show being shown? They just drive out there and sit and look through their windshield. And they take the speaker and they hang it on the side of their car and they just sit and they bring their lunch. I have seen people drive for 40 miles with their lunch just to watch the steel mill work. Just to watch it over there in the distance. You just see little lights going once in a while and you see flames in the sky. They sit there and eat their lunch and for four hours and finally they get back in the car and they drive, drive back out to the, drive back out to the house. And this is, the, this is the constant search. Well, my old man was always in the forefront of the great crowds that, that happen. And I can remember as a kid one time going to a thing in a big airport. Incidentally, that was another thing, you know. People used to drive to just sit and watch airplanes. No more, no less, just watch airplanes. And we would go to the airport and sit there, and the planes would come in, and the planes would go off. And every time they would go in and go off, there would be comments by all the spectators who were standing around watching. They would, they would comment as to whether, boy, look at, look at that cowboy. And the guy would go up very steeply. Everyone would comment on whether he, whether all this, this whole business of just watching things was a very important. My grandmother spent 30 years of her life sitting on the front porch watching cars. So all she did was watch cars go by. And she did not know one car from the other. That's the sad fact of it. She never once ever learned anything about cars. I used to sit there and I'd say, Hey, Grandma, there goes an Essex. She, she'd just look. She sat, uh, 
Oh, that's, uh, I, I don't know those people. And they would go past. She had no interest at all in the cars, but she watched more cars probably than any, than any turnpike guard of today watches. She just sat and looked at them. But I remember one time being taken in, into a, into the car. And we drive, we drove all the way on out to the outskirts of Chicago, out to the municipal airport. I remember the word. They were always talking about going out to the municipal airport. And out at the municipal airport, they were having the air races. Well, of course, this drew fantastic crowds. It is unimaginable how many people gathered in the Midwestern states for a thing like the air races. They came from every, every city of, of, well, it was just tremendous. And the roads, of course, were not like they are now. So you had billions of cars all lined up. It would start at 6 o'clock in the morning, just the driving, until finally everyone would arrive, and it's about maybe 2 in the afternoon when the air races would begin. There's a tremendous sea of people. And right in the middle of it, and get this, right in the middle of the sea of people was a field. And on this field there were three pylons. There were three pylons. It was just a pylon, maybe 75 feet tall, painted red and white, and it's sort of a triangular, tall, thin, pyramidal-shaped thing, sitting right out there in the field. There were three of them in a triangular pattern. One, two, three. And right down there at the base of one of the pylons were four or five, maybe as many as six or seven tiny airplanes wee itsy-bitsy airplanes, and over near the edge of the field there was a hangar with a whole crowd of other little airplanes. And these were airplanes like you've never seen in your life. I don't think anybody has ever seen anything like it since. These were airplanes that were so wild, so fierce, that they could hardly fly. If the motors were turned off, they fell, pow, like a rock, right down to the ground. It would be as if you took an airplane motor, just a motor, and you attached two tiny wings to it, and you sat on the top of it, and you turned it on, and the motor got so wide, and it ran along the field, and it just jumped right up in the air, and went, flew around in circles. Well, that's the kind of airplanes these guys flew. They had wingspans of about maybe 12 to 15 feet. Can you imagine that? Little tiny wings. Yeah, you could put one of these in your living room. And they had great big fat motors on them. And these guys would sit in the back of them, and they were, wild. of course, no parachutes, because what good does it do? You're flying at 50 feet. And flying at 250 miles an hour, maybe 200 miles an hour, at 50 feet off the ground. And this is what they would do. They would not race against time. They would race against one another, as I recall it. And the airplanes were red and green and purple and all colors with big wide stripes, white stripes and green stripes down the side. Some of them were high wings, some of them were low wing, some of them were egg-shaped, others were shaped like needles. And almost all of these airplanes were built by the guys who flew them, which made it even more intriguing. You didn't go down to the Piper Cub Company and buy one of these planes. These were racing aircraft. And when, when a race would begin, this was the way it would start. And my old man is right down there in the crowd. Well, I'll tell you, this made this made the Roman made the Roman <laughs> orgies look like kid stuff. It made it made that business of the lions look like a Bobsy twin picnic, actually. And the crowd would be just packed cheek by jowl, all of them knocking down the good humor bars and the Eskimo pies, all of them standing there eating rainbow ice cream cones, drinking drinking beer and sweating it out. The sun is beating down. They're all covered with a coating of dust. And no one is sitting. You couldn't possibly sit. 
And this was the way the thing would happen. The temperature stands at 137 degrees, which is what it always was during one of these great gathering of Midwestern people, like, like a great, great, great school of sunfish all gathered down to look at the worm. Millions of them had come from Ohio, from Indiana, from Kentucky, from Michigan, from all of the Midwestern states, Iowa. They had all gathered to stand in this great big field and watch. And at 2 o'clock, the big cannon would go off, boom, like that. And these guys would rush out from the, from the hangars. Maybe eight or nine guys would rush out around the airplanes, guys wearing white coveralls, red coveralls, and green coveralls with helmets and goggles. And did they? there was never anything looked more romantic than these guys, let me tell you. They were fascinating characters. They would get in the planes and their mechanics, and they barnstormed. They would travel around the country in, in teams of two and three guys. And, and each team would own an airplane, and two of them would fly, and usually one was the mechanic. And, and often he would double as a flyer if one of the other two guys were sleeping off a hangover or something. They were really, they were really barnstormers. And so the guys would, by the way, you know where the term barnstorming comes from? Barnstorming comes from the, the, the fact that the guys would travel around the country and they would rent a barn to put their plane in. And they would do, they would do their aerial stunts, they would do their parachute jumping and all that on a Sunday in, in a barn, in a barnyard lot. And they would use the barn as a hangar. And so it came to be known as barnstorming. And uh, they, they really were uh, just traveling gypsy airplane pilots. But, of course, the racing crew was a completely different crew because they had to have very special equipment, very expensive equipment. And it was, it was very tough, tight competition. They don't allow this kind of racing any longer, incidentally. Now, this could all very well be a, a figment of my imagination, and probably is, but I will describe to you what my imagination saw. It seems hardly possible that this could happen. Well, at 2 o'clock, the cannon would go off, and all these guys would run out, and they would get in their airplanes. Maybe five or six of them, maybe as many as eight or nine would race together in one clump, and they would all start their motors. And if you've ever seen a crowd of little airplanes start their motors on a field that's nothing but dust in the first place, You've never really seen... This is a, a very good insight into hell. And the motors are roaring, and this great crowd of dust is floating back on the people. And, and millions and millions of, 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 of Eskimo pie wrappers and Eskimo pie sticks and hats and stuff are flying through the air with the great wash of the props. And then one by one, they take off. And the way they would take off is like no airplane you've ever seen. Because, again, this was on grass. It was not on concrete runways. It was on grass and on dust. These planes would run along the ground for, oh, a very short distance, actually, with their motors wide open. And they would jump off the ground about five or six times because they had such a short wingspan. They could not take the long run, that, that gradual takeoff that we're used to seeing. They would go, <laughs> they would hop along the ground, and on the fourth or fifth hop, the guy would just gun it all the way, and he would stay up out of sheer willpower. And he'd go down, he'd tear along the ground, and he would just, it was fantastic. I'll tell you, it was frightening to see. And they would be about 50 or 60 feet off the ground, and they had the most angry, rotten snarl. They would just go, they would go like that. They're just terrible-sounding airplanes. And one by one, they would jump off the ground until there was a whole field of these little planes flying around like so many flies, like so many blue-back flies. And they're all buzzing in this angry roar, and all of them maybe 50 to 75 feet. They could get no altitude at all on these planes. 
They could get nothing but speed, and the only thing they did have, actually, was that they were not touching the ground. And they, these guys would sit in these airplanes, and they're roaring around the field at about maybe 200, 220 miles an hour, and, and at a fantastic uh, formation. They would fly maybe six or seven feet from each other. <laughs> they're going, until finally they all approach the pylon. The, the starting pylon, which was a different color than the rest, it was green. The others were red and white. And they would all approach the pylon. And by the way, they had to fly lower than the pylon. If they flew above the pylon, it was, they were out. They were considered to have not made a turn properly. And they all had to fly lower than the pylon. And the pylon was a big wooden structure about 75 feet tall. And so the planes are all flying level low to the ground. And in one mob, they did not fly against time. They flew against one another. And they would all approach this pylon full out, all of them. They're, they're ready to start. And then, and then, boom, it would go. They would all go around the pylon. And some, guy was, some guys would go high. Some guys would go low. Other guys would fly wide. Other guys would cling to the turn. And all of them would approach the turn. And they would all converge on the next pylon. Just like going through a funnel. Just like you know what, going through a funnel. They would, they would go around. And everybody is screaming madly. And then... They'd make about three or four of these turns, and of course, inevitably, it would happen. You'd see this great cloud of dust over on the far turn. Boom! Some guy hits the dirt. Boom, 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 boom. His plane would roll over about 35 times. There would be a great shout and a great, a great spurt of flame, and the planes would seem to, to go even faster then. When they would see, they'd see one of their fallen comrades, they would be encouraged by this. They would step on the gas even more. And then a plane would go maybe after 15 or 20 turns. One of them would go into the crowd. 400 people killed in one great swath, just right through the crowd. No one would say anything. Just a great cheer would go up, and more racing would go on. Of course, this was all part of the universal death wish that was so much, so much floating down over the great landscape in the Midwest. Does anybody remember this kind of racing? This would go on all afternoon. And between, between races, little wagons would go out and pick up the pieces. The, the, the little airplanes would be brought back, little pieces of green wing. And, and, and by the way, these airplanes were nothing but frame. They had no, they had no uh, well, they had no protection at all because they were all built for lightness. They were built out of canvas. They were built out of aluminum, little aluminum pipes and this great big motor hanging up in the front. You know who one of the most famous of all the racers in that crowd was? I, I remember seeing him race. I saw him race because he was he was a famous name. He would, it would be like going to see somebody like, uh, oh, Rathman or one of the great drivers, uh, the Indianapolis drivers of now. He was a very famous man. And one of the most famous racers of all of them of that time was a guy named Doolittle. Jimmy Doolittle raced in this fanatical, wild, screaming racing. Another one was a guy named... Uh, Oh, he was very famous. Roscoe Turner. Does anyone know the name of Roscoe Turner? I will award the Brass Figligy with Bronze Oak Leaf Palm if you can tell me what Roscoe Turner's insignia was. What was it that Roscoe Turner often flew with that, that was kind of his, his trademark? I will award the Brass Figligy with Bronze Oak Leaf Palm to any, to any Saturday member of the, of the vast throng who can, <laughs> the great crowd that's about to converge, who can tell me what Roscoe turned. Now, why do I remember this? I must have been seven. Uh, I'll tell you why I do remember it, though. 
We were on the field one day when Roscoe Turner arrived, and Roscoe Turner always piloted a plane that was painted pure gold. His planes were always gold-colored, gilt planes. And Roscoe Turner came out on the field wearing a pair of high-water breeches, the riding pants, you know, the high high whipcord trousers, and he had a gold he had a gold satin jacket and a gold helmet on, and he, he wore these great big goggles. Yeah, oh, it was, it was spectacular. And he had with him as he walked across the field his famous trademark. And and I remember as a kid I almost passed out from pure excitement. It was so fantastic to see. <laughs> anyway, this this kind of racing and it's interesting to note that this has hardly been even recorded. That uh, that I have not read any books on it. I have never seen anything said about it. It it just as though it passed without even so much as a without even so much as... Speaking of aircraft, we have with us today Lufthansa. (laughs) Far cry uh, from this sort of thing. Incidentally, I would like to point out, though, something very important, and that is that these men driving their racing aircraft, and all of them since they were freewheelers and barnstormers, all of these guys contributed tremendously to aviation as we know it today because these men built their own aircraft. As a matter of fact... Uh, there was one aircraft which was called the really, uh, well, it was, it was the most death-dealing aircraft I think that's ever been, ever been piloted in America. This thing, this thing dealt out death from the bottom of the pack constantly. And it was, I will award you, Russ, I will award you the Brass Figligi if you can identify that aircraft. And I'll give you a few cue, uh, a few little clues. This was one of the great racing aircraft of that period. It became, uh, in later versions of it, the U.S. Air Force copied it, and in later versions, it became a fighter plane, a pursuit plane. And this plane was a famous racing plane. It killed about a dozen pilots. It was it was the hottest little aircraft that ever flew in the pylon racing world. And I will give you a clue. It was milk bottle shaped. This little airplane was shaped sort of like a milk bottle. If you can imagine a little pint bottle, a little tiny bottle, a little short, fat airplane with little short wings and a great big tail, and it was it was a, a real killer. And uh, this this plane was one of the most famous planes of that period of the of that racing world. Now I don't want I don't want these elderly gentlemen to write and say now now. He, Mr. Shepard, obviously, he must rem- he, he must be... No, I was a little kid, but I remember this as vividly as if it were branded on my brain because my father was always taking me to these things. And naturally, <laughs> it, was, it was such a wildly exciting thing that it could, you couldn't possibly forget it. But this kind of racing just disappeared, and this is a program not about racing, so don't get excited. It's about, it's about man's dreams because this whole business, this whole t- kind of racing... This whole thing had to do with a, an attempt on the part of whatever it is. Yes, that is right. That is right. Somebody recognized it. Roscoe Turner carried, during many of his races, he carried either one or two, sometimes two, he carried one or two lion cubs with him on a leash. And now I will award you the real Brass Figligy if you can tell me what company sponsored Roscoe Turner? And he had the company's insignia painted on the side of his plane in great big green paint, great green swatches of paint. Who was it who sponsored Roscoe Turner? <laughs> I mean, why do, why do I remember this trivia? 
I will, uh, I'll have to, why do I remember this ridiculous stuff? What is wrong with me? Can anyone tell me why I remember Roscoe Turner and his lion cubs and, and what was painted on the side of his airplane? I remember it, and, and I could hardly read. But there it was. I, I remember it. I can still see. He, he flew, at one time, he flew a Lockheed Vega. Do any of you remember the Lockheed Vega? Beautiful airplane. And the Lockheed Vega was also flown by Lindbergh and his wife, Anne Morrow, when they flew around the world. They had a Lockheed Vega equipped. No, they were flying a Lockheed Orion. There was a whole series of Lockheed Vega, Lockheed Orion, Lockheed Sirius aircraft where they were naming them after, after stars. And the Lockheed Vega was the plane that at one time was flown by, by Roscoe Turner. And I remember they, I believe it was a Lockheed Sirius that, uh, Lindbergh and his wife flew around the world, and he wrote a, a very fine book about that flight, which is of no interest, I suppose, but this was a, fl a float plane, and as a child, I was given a model of this airplane by an uncle of mine, my, my bootlegger uncle, who was the only one in the family who had money, which incidentally kind of made me wonder about this thing that they were always telling me down at school about how if, if you went straight and how if uh, honesty is the best policy, the only uncle that I had at that period was an uncle who wore gray spats and dealt in illicit liquor that came from, came from Canada somewhere <laughs> at the Kentucky Hills. But this uncle, for one, one Christmas gift, gave me a big cast iron model of the Lockheed Sirius that had been flown by Lindbergh and his wife, and it was painted red and black. But uh, this is all, why do I remember this trivia? Speaking of trivia, we have with us, we ha and speaking of aircraft, we have with us Lufthansa today. And I would like to recommend that if you are planning to make a European trip, if you really want to fly in a magnificent aircraft, I would suggest that you try one of the big, the, one of the big Lufthansa DC-707s, a magnificent aircraft. Incidentally, they have a very special 707 that is flown by Lufthansa. Uh, it's a 707 that was, of course, made by the uh, Boeing Aircraft Corporation. But the interior, <clears throat> the interior of the plane was made in France. Uh, it was built in France. It uses Rolls-Royce engines, the, the particular 707s that are flown by the uh, Lufthansa pilots, are 707 uh, Rolls-Royce engines. Big, beautiful. You, you should, you know, have you ever seen those Rolls-Royce jet engines with the big Rolls-Royce uh Label hanging out there. <laughs> it's very impressive. And uh, the <clears throat> the interior of the plane was designed in Germany. It's a very, very international aircraft, but a beautiful, beautiful example of international flying equipment. But this is Lufthansa, and if you're planning a trip to Europe in the next seven or eight months, I would suggest you try Lufthansa. Uh, I might point out that it's difficult these days to get a ticket on one of the Lufthansa international flights, but if you if you are planning a flight, it would be worth trying to get on Lufthansa. That uh, they have become so so sought after as an airline that in less than five years, Lufthansa began business in 1956. Uh, that is their post-war business. You know that Lufthansa is the oldest is the oldest commercial airlines in the world. Lufthansa was flying right after World War One as a commercial airline, and uh, it's a. I saw a history of the Lufthansa airline. Uh, even even as a kid, you know, the Lufthansa airline was a very romantic thing. They used to fly the big Junkers, the big Junker trimotors with the uh, with the corrugated flat sides. You remember those those uh, Ford and later Ford built them in the United States under a license by Junkers Fokker. 
the uh, the Fokker design. Be- beautiful aircraft. You know that some of those Fokker planes that were that were uh, built by Ford in Detroit are still being flown in South America. Some of those planes are are 35 years old and are still working regularly. Uh, the romance of of the aircraft is I, I've never now I've never outlived it. You know, when I was a kid, no kid wanted to be a television star or a movie actor. The thing that all kids wanted to be. Boys wanted to be air, airplane pilots, and girls wanted to be nurses. Those were the two most glamorous professions that existed. But we would like to point out again, Lufthansa is on deck, and if you are planning a trip, we would suggest you do it via Lufthansa, an international flight. But, but you know, the, the, whole, the whole romance of this thing has kind of, uh, has kind of disappeared. Speaking of disappearances, here I go. This is WOR Radio, your station for news. Sunoco, Sunoco, 200X gives you premium ingredients at regular price. 200X gives you premium ingredients at regular price. 200X gives you premium ingredients at regular price. Sunoco, Sunoco. New Sunoco Blend 200X, a new gasoline. Gives you the ingredients of a high-priced premium, yet you pay only regular price. Many cars get extra power. Up to 13% more power after just two tankfuls. 200X gives you premium ingredients at regular price. New Sunoco 200X gives extra mileage. Up to 19 more miles per tankful. 200X gives you premium ingredients at regular price. New Sunoco 200X gives you extra engine protection. Can mean longer life for your car. Yes, new Sunoco Blend 200X gives you extra power Extra mileage, extra engine protection. 200X. Just, just set it back just about, about one, about maybe two or three grooves, Jim, and I'll give you the cue. Can't you imagine this crowd in your living room? Just, just, just in your living room. Can't, can't you just see the looks on their faces? Can't you see the, the wonderful glint in their eye? 200X gives you premium ingredients at regular price. Sunoco, Sunoco. 200X, exceptional. Oh, it's such a loud bunch. Such a single-minded bunch. Such a such a wonderfully single-minded bunch. Oh, incidentally, speaking of single-minded bunches, I mean, it's as though you're living in a vast anthill. A fantastic anthill. One that has unimaginable dimensions that go on and on and on and on and on, and millions of passages, millions of tiny, tiny little antechambers and anterooms, and all the ants are climbing one over the other. Billions of ants climbing one over the other, one on top of the other, building this fantastic structure of, of intricacy, intricacy beyond the imagination of any single ant. Each is placing his little bit of sand here. Each is pulling his tiny, tiny bit of grass there. It's, it's, this is a, this is a wild, wild thing we're a part of. This whole, this whole structure of mankind, and it includes everything, baby everything. It includes beach balls. It includes pinball machines. It includes bowling pins, golf clubs, radio tubes. Bubble gum, it includes the whole shooting match. By the way, is there anyone out there, anyone, or is this purely a Midwestern thing? I can remember my mother standing there over the sink with her rump-sprung orange chenille bathrobe, the one that had 
the old dried egg on the lapels. I can remember her standing over over the kitchen sink and looking out looking out over the backyard. We had this we had this window that looked out over the backyard and over the driveway that was a cinder driveway. And she'd look out into Bruner's backyard, who lived next door, Bruner who worked in the roundhouse. And during these days, which was the Depression world, he picked up one day a month. Bruner worked one day, and that day was a festive day. I can remember the way Bruner would set out for work, carrying his lunch bucket. There would be a kind of a live feeling in the air, in the whole neighborhood. Bruner's going off to work today. And maybe maybe three, four, five hours after his day's work was over, he would come reeling back. Bruner always celebrated his day's work at Flick's Tavern on the corner. He would celebrate the day and come reeling in. And I can remember my, my mother looking out over the, over the backyard and the endless backyards of all creation, out over the endless alleys. And incidentally, an alley is a thing that's almost completely unknown to those who live here in the eastern seaboard region. But to those of you who do not know what an alley is, an alley is a kind of secondary road that runs behind the garages. Garages are things that people used to put cars in, and they're out in the back there. Before they had the barbecues and all that, they used to have little houses they put cars in, and that old alley used to run back there, and the alley was the natural habitat of kids and guys who fixed cars on Sunday afternoons. And it was a, it was a kind of a live, undressed sort of street. Anything went in the alley. All sorts of things. Everything went. And I can remember my mother looking out over the endless backyards and the endless alleys and the endless garages of all creation. And Bruner would come reeling up, up his back steps, reeling up, his lunch bucket rattling. Bruner has celebrated his day's work for the month. I can remember my mother looking out, out over the backyards, and she would say... I don't know whether this expression just came out of my mother or whether it's, it's an expression that is an Americanism. I do not know. All I know is that it is part of my feckless youth. Oh, I can remember the days when I didn't have a single feck. A completely feckless youth. Incidentally, that's a good word. Uh, for those of you who are looking for something to do on this Saturday to get your claws into, your talons into, look up the word feckless. It's a good word for your, for your lexicon. And incidentally, lexicon is a good word for your lexicon. Look that one up, too. And so I'm sitting there at the, at the kitchen table, the white enameled kitchen table, knocking down a salami sandwich and drinking some lukewarm knee-high orange, which I had saved for maybe two or three days. I was a great pop saver. I would drink it by installments. I used to do funny things to my nose, and I would save it until finally it was dead. When I was a kid, I couldn't stand what I called gassy drinks. It used to tickle my nose. And so I would take the gassy drinks, and I would open them up, and I'd let them, I'd let them age in the bottle until finally they were as, as limp and flaccid, limp and, and colorless and tasteless as old last year's mashed potatoes. But somehow it meant something to me, and I'm drinking away my knee-high orange, and my mother is looking out over that backyard. Now, I don't know whether anybody ever used this expression here or not. I will just use it for what it's worth. She would look out and she'd say, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen to the whole shooting match. I'd say, what do you mean, Ma? She'd say, I don't know. There's Bruner again. 
And she would just look out over the over the backyards and over all the garages and the alleys of all time and, and express a doubt as to what the eventuality of the shooting match was to be. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Have you ever heard the expression shooting match? It was never shooting match. It was shooting match. Is there anyone out there who can tell me what precisely a shooting match is? It doesn't matter, does it? You know and I know. See, we're in this miserable, fat-swinging, juicy, wild, exquisite ant hill all together. I carry my little sand, you carry yours, Daddy. I mean, I dig my tunnel, you dig yours. And we're all involved in that, 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 that wild, wild swinging thing, all trying to forget at one time, all of us together, that we all live, eat, breathe, propagate, and die. Just like the mayflower, just like the poor little mayfly hovering for a moment over the stream, peopled by rainbow trout, who then themselves provide the fodder for people who sit on the banks, who provide the fodder for the great vast Spinning wheels of time. <laughs> and so here we're sitting on this Saturday. A great... Oh, yes, incidentally, speaking of that, I will award the brass figligy with bronze oak leaf palm to anyone who can identify Dick Grace for me. No, you know that the fascinating thing is that these men were bigger than movie stars in their days. Yes. Oh, Dick Grace. I can name... All right, I'll, I'll, put, I'll put you on your medal. For those of you who, who remember your Americana, who feel that you know Americana, can anyone identify the Howard the Howard brothers? The Howard brothers. No, these were these were guys who who created aircraft and who raced them in the the very heart of the Depression days. And can you tell me the names of the airplanes that they built? I'll never forget the day that I I went all the way out to an airport which was about 19 miles from home, I rode on my Elgin bicycle all the way out to see one of the Howard brothers bring his plane in. He was on his way to the big races in Cleveland. And he was supposed to be landing there at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And it was luckily on a Saturday, and I rode my bicycle, it seemed like, for, for four days until finally I arrived at this, these great treks. Do you, do you remember any great treks when you were a kid or, or even, even just as a person? A great, uh, uh, an odyssey. An odyssey. Of course, all of our lives are odysseys in one sense or another. In one sense or another in only one sense. I mean, we're, we're constantly searching for some kind of a, a, a spinning grail, some kind of a golden apple that we're all running after like, like insane people driven, burning by flames, and, and singed by, by sparks that none of us ever see. Just nipping away. Oh, I'll never forget being nipped at there by that, that big old bloodhound I was running across the ice there. Excuse me, that's another story. Speaking of other stories, <laughs> and if you're going to make the uh, village scene this weekend, and boy, this is a great time to do it if you want to see some of the more exotic outpourings of of the human race i would suggest you do it during the during the days of the washington art square you'll realize that the that the imagination of man has not yet been plumbed that is the depths i would suggest that uh, you drop by ying and yang while you're down in the village and if you're looking for a, a really superb restaurant to try over the weekend 
You know, it's awfully difficult, particularly during the summer months, to find a good restaurant open in New York over the weekend. It really is tough, particularly on a Sunday. And uh, if, if you are looking for a place, if you're coming into town, or if you're just looking for a place to have a good, a really good meal over the weekend, I would suggest that you try Ying and Yang. Uh, I've, I've eaten in many an Oriental restaurant all over this country, and I can tell you this, that the that the report that was given by one of the big gourmet magazines a few months back to the effect that Ying and Yang is one of the five finest oriental restaurants in the entire United States is not overstating the case a bit. It's a magnificent restaurant. And if you're, if you're going to ask for anything, even if, you, even if you don't come in there for a meal, if you just drop by off the street and, and you want one small thing, and incidentally, I think one of the things that we do wrong when we eat is that we overdo it too much. We, we order too many dishes, too many things, so that we dull the, the poignancy or we dull the importance of any one good thing. I would suggest that you go into Yin and Yang and you order this one thing. If you're just looking for one small thing, order an order of chicken wings. These are truly magnificent, and they're not at all like any chicken wing or any anything remotely connected with what you would consider chicken wings. Uh, just just order a chicken wing appetizer, and they this is a this is a wonderful, fantastic uh, dish, and the, the the restaurant itself is on Third Street, down in the village, back of the NYU campus. And they are open until 1 o'clock this morning, and they are open on Sundays from noon until about midnight, something like that. But it is very wise to call Ying and Yang before you go down there for a reservation. Incidentally, wear a jacket. Uh, this, is, this is a must. It's a, it's a beautiful little restaurant. It's a restaurant with style, and I don't mean, I don't mean style in the sense of... of uh, of Chinese red linoleum-covered booths. Not that at all. This is a, a restaurant that has genuine style. It's Ying and Yang, 82 West 3rd Street, and any any cab driver can take you there. Just, just get in a cab and tell them you want to go to the village, 82 West 3rd Street. It's very simple to find. Ying and Yang, and they have just 18 tables. So if you're, if you're planning to make a meal down at Ying and Yang, I'd suggest you call them before you go. Ying and Yang. And they're open from noon today until 1 o'clock in the morning. They're also open from noon tomorrow on Sunday until about 1. And by the way, they have an excellent bar, in case that is a question that you're mulling over. And speaking of questions, in, in the village itself, and uh, I would like to point this out because it's a, it's a bugging problem that many of us have, uh, we have with us the electronic workshop. I haven't said a, uh, there's not much you can say about the workshop. You know, too often I have talked on the air about the service that's available at the electronic workshop, but the reason I have done this is because one of the real problems with high-fidelity equipment today is to know of a reliable place where you can have the, the equipment repaired at a reasonable rate. And at the same time, when you buy equipment, to have somebody who personally will stand behind the equipment. And when I say personally, I mean personally. Not this little impersonal card you get with the equipment that says, one year guarantee, mail it into the manufacturer. And you come back to the place and they say, well, uh, send it away. I mean, wrap it up and send it away. and uh, It'll take a month or two months. And, you know, this, this very amorphous sort of thing. Well, you will find that anything you buy at the electronic workshop these people are right there with it. These people themselves personal. And incidentally, if you buy a, a hi-fi system 
at the electronic workshop. You can be, you can, you can definitely be assured that these people will give you absolutely the best possible combination of parts and equipment and components for the dollar spent. Because they are, they are in business to be in business for a long time. They're a small organization, and you know, you can't hide when you're little. When you have a big place that sells 14,000 amplifiers a day, and you have 27 clerks, and all the amplifiers come down from the 38th floor in chutes, you can hide behind that great anonymity. Uh, you, you walk in with the amplifier under your arm, you know, and you, you see these guys, all the clerks look alike, and you say, don't you remember me? I was in here a couple of weeks ago. I bought this. And they give you this blank stare, the catalog stare, you know, the 48-page illustrated catalog look. Well, you can't hide when there's only two or three people in the shop and all customers know everybody else. And it's that kind of organization. This is the electronic workshop for all your hi-fi worries. They're at 26 West 8th Street in the village. And if you have any problems with your hi-fi equipment, or if you'd like to find out about having equipment installed in your home, give them a call. They're open today until 9 o'clock. They're open every night in the village until 7 o'clock. They open about 11 in the morning. And the number is Gramercy 30140. You ought to write this on the side of your preamp. Gramercy 30140, the electronic workshop. Back to Gene Shepard in just 20 seconds over WOR, AM and FM, New York. Here's Grand Union's extra special of the week. Ready? Ready. Boneless round roast. All U.S. choice, Armor Star and Swift Premium. Top quality round roast. Now only 79 cents a pound at Grand Union. Only 79 cents a pound and I save stamps too. Save cash and stamps at Grand Union and Sunrise Supermarkets. And we got this this whole this whole this whole anthill going. And nobody remembers the Howard brothers. Isn't that sad? Not one. Did, did anyone call on that one? One lone guy. One sad traveler. Living way out there in Staten Island somewhere in complete isolation. Also with a mind that's burdened with a fantastic load of trivia. Remembers the Howard brothers. And the names... All right, I'll, I'll put you on your medal if you think you know. What was the name of the aircraft that Wiley Post flew for a good part of his career? And what was the name of the aircraft that Amelia Earhart flew? And how many of you can tell me the name, the company that made the airplane that Lindbergh flew in his famous transatlantic hop? The name of the plane was not the Spirit of St. Louis. <laughs> it was not made by the Spirit of St. Louis Aircraft Company at all. And who flew the question mark? Which was a... And, and, you know, speaking of this of this wild period in aviation, I remember one time being taken out to an airfield where, where two guys were attempting to break an endurance record. Do you remember when they were having endurance records all the time, Jim? Do you remember that? They were always flying around, and and we we were taken out there one day. My old man, of course, he was a, he was a, a, a natural member of the crowd. And when I say member of the crowd, I say that in capital letters. He was a born audience member. It's too bad he, it's too bad he departed this veil of tears before television. He would be one of the vast, numberless, the great, great, great unfaced, the great horde out there sitting there every week looking at all the right shows, looking at all the, all the high-rated programs. He would drift into the high-rated things just naturally. Without even knowing the ratings, he was he was part of it. 
And I, I remember one weekend we went out to watch these two guys up in Milwaukee, of all places. We must have driven 4,000 miles over hill and over dale in the, in the Oldsmobile, or was it the Graham Page, or was it the Hupmobile? We, I can remember every car that we ever had. And we, we drove over hill and dale endlessly in the heat and, and the radiator constantly overboiling until finally we arrived at a field that was peopled by 18 million other slobs, just exactly like my father, just like my mother, who was always hot and scratching, who always had a great big basket full of stuff to eat, with 15 million kids crying. And all that we did was stand around and look up in the sky at a little airplane that kept flying around the field, and there were two guys who were breaking the endurance record, just flying around in circles. And every day there would be a big headline in the paper, 54 days, and it would have exclamation points, 54 days they've been up. And then more people would go out and watch. And hour after hour after hour they would fly around up there, up in the sky, night and day, the endurance record. And this was all, of course, during the period of the flagpole setting. This was during the period of the marathon dancing. This was during the great yo-yo craze. This is when guys were doing nothing but sitting around popping, popping goldfish into their mouths while they were studying sociology at Harvard. <laughs> Speaking of sociological statistics and the, and the lunatic fringe, it was all part of the same thing. Everyone was casting around. You see, what had happened, at, at the beauty of the Depression, and the only beauty that has been discernible, is that suddenly all the trivia that man really is involved in all day long during most of his life was removed. No, no automobiles were hardly made. Nobody went down to the factories. Everybody was out of work. Nobody, nobody went down to sell things. So people drifted into the natural things they do, which is to fool around. Man is a born fooler arounder. He is really a born fooler arounder. And when he fools around, he gets out his yo-yo. Or he starts to fly an airplane in circles, endless circles over an airfield. Or he gathers in a gigantic crowd and does nothing but eat good humors all Sunday afternoon and lets his radiator boil over. This is the natural activity of man. And once the unnatural activities have been removed, such as the vast, the vast assembly lines, the great, great industrial complexes that we work in, once all the paper dolls and all the cutting out of paper dolls and all the filing of paper dolls and all the mailing of paper dolls and all this trivia that we're constantly involved in all day long, once this stuff is, is removed from us, either forcibly or some other way, we go back to what we naturally do, which is just like doing a marathon dance thing. I think the marathon dance was probably the most significant remark on the true life of man that's ever been made. It's like the time, you know, speaking of marathon dances, I remember I'm, a, I'm this little kid, you see. I'm a little itsy-bitsy kid, and they got a marathon dance going on about two miles from my home. And every day at 12.15, in the, in the afternoon of all times, and then every day at 5.15, and then every night at about 10 on the radio for 15 minutes would come this guy. He'd say, hello, ladies and gentlemen, we're down at the Pearl Ballroom where the great international dance festival, the great international dance marathon, is now on its 2,000th day. And back, in back of him, you could hear an organ playing. La, da, da, da. No, that isn't the same Howard Brothers. She's talking about the Howard Brothers in the vaudeville world. 
No, no, these were Howard, the Howard brothers, who had to do with the aircraft world, a much different Howard brothers. And all the while, 14 couples were dancing their lives away, being observed by 16 million other couples who were also dancing their lives away in another way. But the, but the marathon dance somehow codified all of it. And the guy who used to come on and introduce the marathon dances used to, on the radio, he used to stop in the middle of what he was doing and say, And now, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to have one of the big marathon sprints. And uh, couple number seven, Chicky and Millie Miller, are going to go into the big marathon sprint. And then he would stop and he would begin to do card tricks. And then he would do little funnies. He would tell jokes. And he would wear a paper hat. And then he would come up to the, to the crowd. You see, these people did not work on any salaries at all. All the people who were doing this marathon dance stuff, including the MC, including the orchestra, including the dance hall, all worked by uh, admission, and the admission was about a dime, I think, but also they worked by free will offerings. And one of the most interesting religious ceremonies I have ever seen was one time when I went to the marathon dance with my mother. This, they, they were perfect marathon dance fans. I went to the marathon dance with them, and here was this, this crowd of people sort of dragging around out in the middle of the dance hall, marathon dancing. And, and the, uh, the trio, it, at night, by the way, they would replace the organ with a trio, and they would sit behind the potted palms, and they would play things like Josephine and String of Pearls. And the trio is playing away there in the background, and the MC is out in the middle, and he's shouting at the crowd. He is saying, ladies and gentlemen, let's give all these wonderful contestants a great big hand. These people now for over 2,000 hours have been dancing away. And he, he, he runs around and he, he waves his arms. He begins to exhort. And then he says, and now let's have a five-minute rest period. And they would blow the whistle. And the five-minute rest period would consist of one, of one dancer lying down on a cot while the other dancer continued to move. And, and they would alternate, you see. One dancer would move around and sort of dance with himself out there while his partner would lie on the cot for five minutes. And while they were having the rest period, the MC would entertain the crowd with funny stories, peppy patter, and banjo solos. Well, I'll never forget this MC. This guy was absolutely, he was manic. I mean, his, just absolutely manic. Uh, his eyes would gleam, he would fall on the floor, he would play the banjo, he would dance, and then as he would arise to his final pitch, he was a kind of Dennis King, a kind of, not Dennis King, I, I take it back, he was a kind of Dennis James. He was a Dennis James of the marathon dance world. And, and his final pitch was, let's give to all these wonderful people who are giving everything for each one of us, they're giving for all of us. And then people would throw nickels and dimes out on the dance floor. And this, this, this Dennis James of the, of the dance hall world, you'll never guess what his name was. I'll award you the Brass Figlicky with bronze. I'll bet he's trying to live it down even to this day. I'm just this little kid and I'm watching. Well, I'll tell you who it was. It was Red Skelton. <laughs> yeah, Red Skelton. <laughs> the first time I ever heard of Red Skelton, I was a little kid and he was emceeing marathon dance halls. He was out there. He was the Dennis James of the marathon dance world. It was, and, and, and this, this whole business, you know, this, this thing of the, uh, of the marathon dance in a way, you see, it was very symbolic because, because they were, they, everyone was involved in a marathon dance, which is what we're all involved in anyway. Only this time it was made solid. It was right out there and made solid. Nobody remembers the Howard brothers. Isn't that sad? 
Can any one of you tell me what the Howard Ike looked like? Look at that. Isn't that ridiculous? I mean, I, 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 I mean, the, the sadness is, is overpowering. No one, no one. Speaking of sadnesses, we have with us this afternoon the Village Voice. And I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what I'll do. I, 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 sometimes I feel like the Dennis James of the Village Voice. But I, I would like to make a point that is very important to me. Somebody wrote me a note the other day, and he said uh, he was he was talking about various subjects in the world in which we live. This great, fantastic ant hill, and the guy was writing from somewhere out in Pennsylvania, and he says, "You know, Shepherd, I get the Village Voice, and all I can say is that the Village Voice is the Village Voice." And he says, "What more can you say?" Well, my feeling about the Village Voice is this, and I will lay it down very, very simply without any embellishment. I think that there is a whole area of this wild swinging anthill that we are all part of that goes almost completely unreported and unnoticed by the vast body of the press and the vast body of literature. It's a kind of recording of the daily frustration and the daily exhilaration and the momentary exaltation of the fact of living itself. And to me, this is what the Village Voice does. It's a funny paper. It's a sad paper. It's a shallow paper. It's an adolescent paper. It's a profound paper. It's, uh, it's an important paper. It's a trivial paper. It's all of these things combined. And it is the one paper that I know of that really does give a free hand and a free voice to a lot of people who ordinarily don't get it. As a matter of fact, most of the people I know who write for the Village Voice do it purely because it is the one paper that allows them to say exactly what they want to say, the way they want to say it. Uh, I've known, for example, I can give you, I can give you one example after another. For example, Gilbert Seldes. Seldes. I one time talked to Seldes about it. I mean, Seldes is a very important social commentator on the American scene. And, you know, Seldes sells for, for, for high prices. And sell these rights for nothing for the village voice. Why? Because he can say what he wants to say, not that he doesn't do that in other articles, but he is typed. We live in a world that types everybody. Uh, if you, if you make your name as a, as a man writing about jazz, when you write in other, you just gotta keep continuing writing about jazz. You must do that. You cannot write about the texture of life. Nat Hentoff found that out. And one of the things that Hentoff writes in The Voice about is that he doesn't have to even mention jazz. He can write about everything that interests him. And he's an excellent man at it. But it is this kind of paper. It's a very important little paper. And it's one of the most entertaining newspapers that, that I have ever run across. And I'll make you, I'll make you a, a, a solemn and a profound promise. About two years ago, I wrote for The Village Voice almost every week. In fact, I wrote for The Voice... Uh, oh, I, uh, about a year there. I don't think I missed two or three issues of The Voice. Incidentally, I'd like to point out another thing. The Voice, uh, there is an anthology that is being brought out of all the best writings in The Village Voice over the past five years. Now, a lot of you people have just found out about The Voice within the past year or two. I'd like to point out this paper has been in existence for over four years. It's its fifth year now. And much of their absolutely best material appeared three and four years ago when you didn't even hear it you knew nothing about it. And the voice is coming out with an anthology that uh, you should really watch for because it should be 
uh, a rather important document of our times. There's stuff by Mailer. Uh, I was I was very flattered to get a note from the publisher that they're going to include four of my earlier pieces in this particular anthology. Now, I will make a solemn promise to you, and it is this, that I have been deeply involved in a couple of publishing ventures myself that have just been completed. Uh, you'll hear about those later, probably. But it now gives me, I now have some time to spend, which I did not have prior to about a week ago. I will make a solemn promise that I am going to do and bend every effort I can to begin to write regularly for the Village Voice again. I, I, all I need is, is to have about nine guys call up and say, Shepard, get off your duff, will you? <laughs> because <laughs> it, it's a funny thing about writing, the motivation of it, but I am going to do it. Uh, if you would like to subscribe to this newspaper, and, I, and I'd say this, in all fairness, uh, I think that the Village Voice is not the kind of newspaper you can judge by reading one issue. Uh, it is just not that kind of paper. It's, it's a paper that has a, a constant flow of life to it. Some days it just it is, and there's nothing. The next week it'll be wildly exciting. Uh, the week after that it'll be nothing again. The week after that it'll be wildly exciting again. So you have to really give it a try. If you want to find out about the paper, if you'd like to subscribe, the Village Voice will take your subscription over the telephone. And incidentally, their, their excitation editor is on duty today. Uh, also, you'll find their exaltation editor is on duty on Saturdays. So give them a call, and, and no matter where you live, they will accept the phone call, collect. In other words, if you're calling from Maine or Fire Island or wherever you happen to be calling from, call them, collect, and just reverse the charges, give them your name, and you'll start getting the paper in a week or two. Uh, they will bill you for it, and you're in business for one year. The paper costs $3 for a year. It's a weekly, and is considered to be one of the most important international journals that America produces today. You know, it's far better known in England. It's far better known in England and in France than it is throughout the body of the United States. Uh, for example, Jules Pfeiffer, who is one of their creations, one of their, one of their finds, appears in one of the top English newspapers. His Village Voice cartoons appear reprinted in, I believe, it's the London Observer, very important paper, the paper that Kenneth Tynan writes for. But nevertheless, the number to call is Watkins in New York, Watkins 4-4669. Watkins 4-4669. Ask for the exaltation editor. He will handle the excitement of life division of the paper, and it has been for some time. Of course, he has his momentary moods and depressions, <laughs> looking out over the vast terrain of the endless garages, the endless backyards of all time, the alleys that stretch to the very horizon of man's mind, and the recognition that, I don't know what's going to happen to the whole shooting match. But then again, on the other hand, who does? I mean, we're, we're living in... The, have, you, have you been following this porpoise thing? Let me tell you something about the dolphins and the porpoises. The names, of course, are synonymous. They're the same thing. But as we live in this vast anthill... As we struggle and moil and muck for gold, as Robert Service puts it, as we, as, we, as we constantly fly our kites. And speaking of flying kites, I saw one of the most sickening ads, one of the most frightening, one of the most fantastic, wild ads I've ever seen in my life. There was a little ad way down at the bottom of the page in one of the, I believe it was in the New Yorker, a little itsy-bitsy ad. Oh, we're living in parlous times. 
moil and bubble, toil and trouble, in hock, gricula conk, in est, spittle valk. Will you please hand me volume seven of the sacred laws? Please, volume seven of the bylaws of the sacred stars of the Milky Way rush. I have to give extreme unction to Charlie Gutstop. I'll never forget Vic Gook giving extreme unction to Charlie Gutstop over the phone because Charlie, Charlie had sprained his left ankle playing indoor horseshoes in the basement. <laughs> and then he'd get on the phone, he'd say, In hock, agricula, conk, in est, will you please leave the room? This is very secret. In est, spittle, lauk. Are you all right, Charlie? Fine, any time, Charlie. And by the way, you're two months behind on your dues. Click, he hands up. Well, let me tell you about this extreme thing, this unction that we're all involved in. I think one of the most exciting stories of the past 500 years, including the Sputniks, including our, our contact with space and all the rest of it, is what is happening in the dolphin world. Have you been following those front page stories in the New York Times? It's wild that they, that the Navy has been, has been, has been involved in experiments on dolphins. And they have found that the dolphin's brain is more complex and larger and quicker, sharper, and sneakier than man's brain by far. And furthermore, he learns quicker. That he learned to do a thing which the average man would take four to five times to learn to do, and it would take the average monkey 300 tries, and still he would fail. The dolphin did it once, and ad-libbed as he did it. And incidentally, they also found out that the dolphin has a sense of humor, which is something 90% of mankind does not have. And they picked a dolphin at random, and he started to chuckle, just from looking at the people, which is something you find it pretty difficult to do. I'd like to, I'd like to point out that there was one very, very intriguing little line in this, and I'm sure that it just went sailing right out the left field and no one paid any attention to it. The doctor, this, this, this uh, neuropathologist, a famous scientist who was working on the dolphin experiments. He said this. He says, We now know that the dolphin has a highly complex social structure which we do not yet understand. He has a highly involved language which we do not understand. He obviously has mores which we do not understand. He is extremely happy and has a sense of humor. I feel that all of this casts great doubt as to the supposition, and on the supposition, that man is, after all, the highest creation in the whole hierarchy of nature. I repeat that. I will paraphrase it. What the guy says is that I do not know whether or not, at this point, whether man is the top of the ladder. Do you realize that right offshore here there could be a whole civilization living in the sea, a civilization that has found out what the real secret is, that really knows what it's about? There has never yet been on, on, recorded, on all of recorded history, there has never been one single case of one dolphin challenging another dolphin to a war to the death over a completely senseless abstraction, which mankind obviously is bound and determined and intent upon doing, and has done 10,000 times in the past. And there was another interesting thing that was said about the dolphin, and it is this, that the dolphin is one of the very rare creatures, Russ, who has reversed the order of evolution. 
the dolphin left the land and went back to the sea. Now, it could very well be that two and a half million years ago, there was a whole civilization of dolphins who rose to exactly the same heights we have been and maybe even higher. And one day, they realized the insanity of it all. This vast, moiling anthill, this gigantic, this gigantic construction line, this great assembly line of mankind. And one day, one of them was swimming off Jones Beach with his beach ball and decided he was not coming back. And he happened to have this chick with him. The two of them were out there lolling about. And one day, one of them said, you know, I can swim underwater pretty good. And the chick with him says, you know, I find that I can do the same thing. It's kind of nice out here. And they're basking and lolling in the, in the sun. And all the rest of the crowd charged up onto Jones Beach to see Guy Lombardo's latest epic. This fantastic fiasco. And the other two just remained out there to see. Never came back and were unnoticed by the rest of the herd. Well, of course, the inevitable happened in the trough of a wave. <laughs> the inevitable happened when there's this guy and this chick. And a few years passed, and it continued to happen. And then the great and happy day arrived when they forgot that they had even been on land, and all the people on land went their own separate ways and became Ed Sullivan, became Steve Allen and Elsa Maxwell, Khrushchev and Ike and all the rest. By the way, who would you rather have for president, Lenny Bruce or Mort Saul? Oh. <laughs> Oh, sting thy arrow in thy flight, oh, unkind, wounding tears. Oh, weep in thy bitter, bitter exodus from the long veil of the night. Oh, cast into the darkness eternal mankind. Wait, wait, oh, long, somber wait. And so, of course, the eventuality happened. We built museums. We built Disneylands and Freedom Lands. We waved flags and sang songs, and we learned to whistle between our teeth. And all the while, that other crowd has discovered the secret. They just bask, and they play, and they go in circles, and they sing and hum. Until that terrible day, one of them was brought ashore, and we began to experiment, and we found that they were way ahead of us. Wait till we break the code. And we start to talk to dolphins. Do you realize this could rewrite all of theology? All of it. Oh, what a terrible blow. <laughs> you know, we always imagine all, all eternal beings as in the shape of man. Wait till the day arrives. I can just see it now. The pearly gates swing open, and there you are standing before the greatest dolphin of them all. Well, of course, there again, on the other hand, stop dog paddling. It'll not get you anywhere. If you're going to swim, Jack, swim. And speaking of swimming, if you're... Uh, <laughs> I noticed the paper book gallery has finally made it. Esquire has noticed them. Uh, I, 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 I somehow feel very flattered that I have never made a single in or out list in Esquire. I am so out that I'm out of the in and out lists which gives me a kind of somber, masochistic feeling of having made it in a, in a very serious way. But while we're on the subject of the paper book gallery, if you're coming down to the village, you can do no better, believe me, than to spend an hour or so in the paper book gallery on Sheridan Square. 
right down in the heart of the moiling, bubbling, hissing vortex of the ant hill itself. They have probably the greatest collection of paper books in the Western Hemisphere, but that's nothing. I mean, but N-O-Ething, nothing. What the paper book gallery has is something that cannot even be explained on the air. All I would suggest is that you just drop in for about 15 minutes and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And they're open till 2 a.m. this morning. And I'll tell you, the time to go to the paper book gallery is about, I would say, about uh, about 1 o'clock on a Saturday, tonight, about 1 a.m. Just stand there. Just stand there and bathe in the soft, sullen glow of the Kierkegaardian, the Kafkian world. This is the paper book gallery. They got one shop on 3rd Street and one right in the heart of Sheridan Square, right in the village. Uh, fellow Dolphin fans, we'll be back at five minutes past nine in this eternal, moiling, bubbling, hissing, steaming anthill tomorrow night, just before it happens. This is WOR Radio, your station for news. A man with drive. A man-